Welsh, but I was thinking about revival, and that hymn was sung in Wales in 1905 by a woman who sung it in Welsh, and such was the movement of God in that particular meeting that the miners began to weep as they began to consider the love of God in Jesus Christ, and God did a mighty work of salvation in Wales back in the early 1900s, and that hymn played a particular role uh, in the particular working of God, and so a great choice of hymn as we turn this morning to the Word of God. I bring you the greetings of Emmanuel Baptist Church in California, Sacramento, California. It's a joy to be with you this morning. I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you have a copy of Scripture, to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. As we come this morning uh, to the Word of God, I want to draw your attention to God Himself and to the most well-known verse in all of the Bible that I'm pretty confident you could quote if I was to ask you this morning. But we're going to read verses 1 through 21 in order to put it in its context. You will have guessed, of course, that we're going to look particularly at John 3, verse 16 this morning. So let's hear the word of the Lord. John 3, commencing at the first verse. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have, ever, have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe in Him is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. 
but he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we gather before you this morning in the name of your Son, believing that he is indeed the Lord of glory and he is the only Savior from sin. We bless you and we praise you this morning that we have a mediator who functions as our prophet, teaching us the will of God, who functions as our priest, the one who has offered himself to us to make us right with God, and who functions even now at your right hand, interceding for us as our great high priest. And we thank you that he is our king, ruling over us, reigning over us, and coming again for us to bring us to glory. We ask this morning, our God, as we would turn to your word and consider afresh your great love toward us in your Son, that we would behold something of who you are, something of what you are like, that we might see in Jesus Christ what we need to see, the one who alone is able to forgive us for sin and bring us to God, that we might be saved. Father, we need you. We pray for the help of your Spirit, for the preacher and for the hearer alike. We ask this morning that you would reveal yourself to us in your grace and for Jesus' sake. Amen. I wonder if I was to ask you this morning in a few words what you would say the Bible is all about. Some of you might say, well, it's about creation. It's about fall. It's about redemption. And that would be a good way to summarize the message of the Word of God. Others of you might say, well, it's about God and about man and about Jesus Christ and about salvation. And you would, of course, be correct. We might all summarize the message of the Word of God in different ways, but ultimately be saying the same thing. But I wonder if I were to ask you to choose one text in the Word of God that would summarize the message of the whole of Scripture. I wonder which text you would choose. You might initially think, well, Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning God made the heavens and the earth, and that would be a good text to choose, but I don't think it would capture everything that the Bible has to teach us. You might like Psalm 23, verse 1, which is one of my favorite psalms. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall lack nothing. That would be a good text to consider, but again, I don't think it captures everything of the message of the Scriptures. Habakkuk, or as you Americans say, Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4, declares the just shall live by faith. And that is certainly a major theme in the Word of God, but again, doesn't capture the whole story, does it? I think that we all would agree that One of the most famous verses in all of the Bible, if not the most famous verse, and one that many of us who've grown up in Christian homes 
learned from our earliest years really is the verse that captures the whole story. It's a verse that you will see sometimes on the freeway, hanging on a little flag from a bridge. John 3, verse 16. You will see it sometimes when you watch the greatest sport that is in the world, soccer. Behind the goals, there's a banner. John 3, verse 16. People display it in different places. I remember in Northern Ireland, there was a farmer who had a huge barn. And on the side of this barn, as you drove along the freeway, you couldn't miss it. John 3, verse 16. And then he would have the words of the verse painted on the side of this barn. You could see it for miles. John 3, 16 has been described as the gospel in a nutshell. It really does capture, doesn't it, the message of the Word of God. And this morning, I want to draw your attention to this well-known verse, John 3, verse 16. It comes to us in the context of that very well-known encounter between the Lord Jesus Christ and Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a very religious man. He was uh, in the upper echelons of religious uh, Israel. Uh, He comes to Jesus by night. That's not insignificant, I don't think. He didn't want others to know that he was engaging with this rabbi, Jesus, because he was curious about what he was doing and what he was teaching, lest he would incur the displeasure of his contemporaries. But Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. He wants to engage with Jesus. He wants to learn of Jesus. He wants to hear about Jesus. Why? Because he is suspicious that maybe, just maybe, Jesus might be the one that Israel has been waiting on, the Messiah promised in the prophets. He has this encounter with our Lord in which we see very clearly our Lord teaching him about the new birth. We're going to think about the new birth tonight when we come back in the evening in Acts with regards to the conversion of the Philippian jailer. I want us to think about the work of the Spirit in conversion. But this morning as we look at this portion of Scripture where Jesus speaks to Nicodemus about the new birth, we see then that Nicodemus is perplexed. He's not understanding what Jesus is saying. The Lord Jesus makes it very clear to him that the new birth is essential for him to believe the gospel, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in this context, against the backdrop of Nicodemus inquiring of Christ regarding his identity, that we then come to this text that you know that I know, we know off by heart. And as we open up John 3, verse 16 this morning, I want us to consider five important truths about God that this text has to teach us. I want you to consider with me John 3, 16 this morning as we draw out five truths regarding God. My goal this morning is to encourage you to believe the gospel, to encourage you to proclaim the gospel, to encourage you to have confidence in the gospel. Because without the gospel, we are lost. Without the gospel, the church will fail. 
Without the gospel, there is no knowing God, and there is no experiencing His grace. The gospel, brothers and sisters, is everything, and nothing matters more than the gospel. And this morning, as we come to John 3, verse 16, we have the gospel in a nutshell. We have the gospel, if you will, summarized for us. And in particular, we see here five truths about God that I want you to consider with me. Notice number one, God exists. You might say, well, that's a bit elementary. Well, we have to start at the basics. We live in a very secular age. You don't need me to tell you that, but you already know that. Even as our brother Kevin was praying this morning, I was thinking about uh, the realities of what our, our nation is facing and where our nation is at. And as you know, I live in California. And as I like to remind everybody outside of California, California is coming to a town near you very soon, if it's not already there. What's it like in California? It's very secular, very unbelieving. In California, it's quite straightforward. You're either a Christian or you're not. I like that. That helps me. The lines are drawn. We know where we stand. We can bring the message with clarity. There is a heaven to gain and there is a hell to shun, as we're going to think about this morning. But I've got to start with the fact that there are people going, well, how do we know there is a God? Maybe there isn't a God. I like to say to them, well... Why don't we take a trip up to Lake Tahoe, one of my favorite beauty spots in all the world. And let's consider the mountains, and let's look at the lake, and let's consider the beauty of the creation. Or let's go down to Santa Cruz, and let's look at the magnificence of the Pacific Ocean, and the waves coming crashing in, and the vastness of the sea. Let's consider Yosemite. Oh, Yosemite, if you've never been, you've never lived. It was found, it was founded, found by a Scotsman on his way through, and, he, and he, tra- he turned it into a national park for all the Americans and all the Japanese to come into the country and take pictures of. My wife and I love to go to Yosemite. But what do you see? El Capitan. And there are people climb it without ropes. That's terrifying. You've got half dome that you can walk up with a wire. I haven't done it. Too scary. But I do like to look at it. What does it declare to us? There is a creator. There is a God in the heavens. You have a beautiful lake right here. My wife and I were here in August. We went to Grand Haven. We stood on the shores of Lake Michigan, and I just was in awe of its beauty. The sun was setting. I thought, the sun's going down over there in California. And this, the, the, the lake was like a mill pond, and it was beautiful. And what is it? What, what does general revelation declare to us? There is a God who made the heavens, and who made the earth, and who made all that is in them. And you are without excuse, O oh man, when you say there is no God. That's why you're guilty before him, because you refuse to acknowledge even God as your creator. And here in our text, what does our text state? For God so loved. It doesn't argue about whether God exists. It doesn't debate whether we can prove God. It simply asserts God is. God exists. There is a God 
with whom we have to do. And he has revealed himself in the general revelation of nature and the created order, but not enough in order to know him savingly. Not enough in order to deal with our greatest problem, our corruption of nature, our sinfulness. Yes, we can stand and look at Lake Michigan, or we can stand and look at uh, Half Dome in Yosemite, or the Pacific Ocean, or or Lake Tahoe, and we can say, well, clearly someone bigger than us has made all this, but we cannot know him savingly by merely looking at his creation. We need his special revelation. His special revelation as we have it in the person of his son and his word that declares his son to us. And here in our text then, as our Lord speaks these words, we see here that he is declaring the existence of God to Nicodemus afresh. Now, Nicodemus knew that there was a God. Nicodemus was a religious Jew. Nicodemus was persuaded that Yahweh was the God of Israel. But Nicodemus did not even know the God of Israel. Only through God coming in Christ could Nicodemus know God. Only through God coming in Christ can you or I know God. And so our Lord declares that God exists at the beginning of this text. But notice then, secondly, he then declares something even more amazing. This God who exists loves. He loves. For God the God who exists, the God who is, the only true and living God, so loved the world that he gave. Our Savior begins right here with Nicodemus to understand the character of God. It's very interesting when you read the Scriptures. The Scriptures declare not that God possesses love. It declares that God is love. And that's far better That's far more amazing. That's far more glorious. Think about it. It's not like God's a pizza, right? He has parts. Well, there's his love part. No, no, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches God is love. God is perfect love. God is pure love. God is the actuality of love itself. Now, when you think about that, you realize then the vastness of God here. You realize the the majesty of God, the glory of God, the wonder of God. Yes, the mystery of God. Comprehending the love of God for us as finite creatures is impossible in all its fullness. The finite cannot comprehend the infinite fully, but we can experience the reality of God who is love. And Jesus is declaring that here. Jesus is explaining this uh, to Nicodemus uh, in, in, in terms of the character of God. And notice how he joins the love of God with the object of the love of God. What is the object of the love of God in our text? For God so loved the world. The world. You mean he just loves the lakes? He just loves the mountains? He just loves Yosemite as a place or or, or Lake Michigan as a place. No, that's not what he's referring to. 
He's referring here to, to the world of God's created order in which exists the human race, in which exists the pinnacle of God's creation, male and female, in which exists those who are created in the image of God, man and woman. And notwithstanding all the confusion of our day, with all the so-called gender arguments, God made us male, God made us female, and it will always be that way to the end of time. And there's no other genders or sexes, right? The sociologists can say all they want about it, but it's never going to be changed no matter how much confusion comes. And we must be honest about that with people, and we must stand back. And in California, where we've got all sorts of strange flags flying in our town, uh, city, not far from our church. We're two blocks from the gay district, and, 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 and it seems like now the trans district and all of that. It doesn't matter. The Bible is clear. God has made us male and female. We must remind people of that lovingly, graciously, kindly, but nevertheless firmly. But we must then say to them, here's the wonder of the gospel. The God who exists loves the world. Not just the world he originally created. No, 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 no. The world that has rebelled against him. And the world that has turned away from him. And the world that hates him by nature. And the world that is corrupt and at enmity with him. Jesus is saying, that world that fallen world of rebellion against God, God loves. God loves. Now, I don't know about you, but that causes me to stand back and think more about the character of this God who made the heavens and the earth, right? The very fact that God has allowed the world to continue since the fall of our first parents and not utterly eradicate it and annihilate it is a testimony to what? the goodness of God, the long-suffering of God, the mercy of God, the love of God. And brothers and sisters, I think we need to remind ourselves of this on a regular basis. We need to remind ourselves of this on a regular basis. When I'm out and about in California, I'm out and about in Sacramento, I'm out and about in a context that is very hostile to God. And yet I have found in the many conversations I have, I'm the chaplain for the local soccer team in the city, and I, I work amongst the, the, the uh, homeless, which is a massive problem in our city. People are literally dying on the streets of Sacramento. Uh, the, the message of the gospel of Christ is a, a message that when you bring it to the lost and the perishing regarding the character of God, you start where Jesus starts. You say to them, for the God who exists, he so loved the world that he gave you know what it does? It disarms people. It disarms them. They're, they're actually shocked. They're actually, what? Because their concepts of God, if they have any concept at all, if they haven't just jettisoned any belief in a, in a creator at all, are, are so skewed that they do not understand the true nature, the true character of the God who made the heavens and the earth. And here is our Lord, and he's saying to Nicodemus, he says, look, Nicodemus, the God who exists, Yahweh, the covenant God, covenant-making God of Israel, who made the heavens and the earth, he so loved the world, he has such a, a, a love for the world that he gives. Now, before we get to that third point, 
I want to just stop for a minute. And I want you to think about the love of God. The love of God is a remarkable love in comparison with the love of men. Why? Because the love of God loves the unlovable. You and I, we like to love people that love us, right? I mean, that's kind of easy, right? My wife, I love my wife, right? She loves me. That's all nice, right? But now I'm going to ask you to love your enemy. I'm going to ask you to love the person who offended you. I'm going to ask you to love the person who did something that was not kind, not loving, not nice. You see, now you go, oh, wait a minute. I'm, I'm, I'm actually bitter about that. I'm actually angry about that. Now, maybe your anger is justified. Not all anger is wrong. But you suddenly realize, wait a minute, this is hard. <laughs> this is hard. If you're, if you're in a, an abusive context, it's hard to love the abuser, right? You've got to deal with this, right? Of course, dealing with the abuser, you've got to tell them the truth. That can be hard too. But loving the unlovable is what God does in the gospel. It's what God does when he loves the world that hates him. It's what God does when he loves the world that is hostile against him. And this is what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, uh, Yahweh, the covenant-making, the covenant-keeping God, he is the God who exists, and he is the God who loves. And then he tells him the manner of his love. And what does he say? His love gives. For God so loved the world, what did his love cause him to do? He gave. He gave. And notice what he goes on to say here. He says, he gave his only begotten son. Now, we're going to get into a little bit of theology here that we have to work through, right? We have to think. Because this is amazing. Right? And this is mind-blowing. And this is not easy to comprehend, right? But in John's gospel... Right at the very beginning of John's gospel, what do we read in John chapter 1? We read that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because what John is actually saying to us here is this, that God exists in more than one person. That's a Trinitarian statement right there. In the beginning was the Word... And the Word was with God. Wait a minute. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. So there's the Father, and there's the Son. And now here in John 3, Jesus is declaring, for God the Father so loved the corrupt world that his love... Then there's the word only begotten. Now, if you have an ESV, which is what I normally preach, it says you're one and only son. Bad translation. Bad translation. Why? Because this language, begotten, is a theological term that helps us understand something of the uniqueness of the relationship between the Father and the Son in eternity. You see, the Father is unbegotten. The Son is begotten. And then the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And these are important truths regarding God who is one and three because that is the God who exists. And here Jesus in John's gospel is recorded as speaking of the fact that the love of God gave the only begotten Son 
to the world. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? It means that the God who existed before the world ever existed had a plan. He had a purpose in his son to rescue a fallen, rebellious, hateful world from eternal destruction. And in the process of time, as time was brought into existence by God, and as man was created and put in the garden, and as man rebelled and the world came under the curse, and God then gave his promises that the, the seed of the woman would come and crush the serpent's head eventually, and it's then reiterated again with Abraham that the seed of Abraham would become a blessing to the nations. God's purpose of salvation unfolds until Bethlehem and the virgin's womb, and the baby, and the incarnation of the second person of the Godhead stepping into the world, coming from the Father, motivated by the love of the Father in order to rescue that which was under the curse and that which was being condemned. God contracted to a span incomprehensibly made man. This is our God. This is our gospel. This is our Jesus. What does it tell us? He grew up in wisdom and in stature, being very God of very God. He was also very man of very man. One person, two natures, no one like him in all the universe. The only hope of the nations, the only savior of mankind come into the world as a result of the God who is love. And we realize, don't we then, something of the sacrificial nature of the love of God, something of the, of the glory of the love of God. It's no surprise that we read in John's letter, behold, what manner of love is this? that we should be called children of the living God because of Christ, the Son of God, who has loved us and given himself for us. But here in John 3, 16, our Lord is revealing to us then that this God who exists, he is a God of love, and he is a God who gives. And what has he given? He's given his Son. The brightest and the best and the most glorious and the most wonderful gift that he could ever give. God has given it all for us that we might be saved, that we might be right with him. You see, what we have here in focus is God's redemptive love in this text, the redemptive love of God in Jesus. This is the message that we must declare to the world, that, that, that there is, a, there is a, a redemption to be obtained through Jesus Christ as a result of the, the love of God. It is sacrificial, it is redemptive, it is covenantal love. It's a love that can never be broken. It can, it's a love that can never fail. It's a love that will accomplish its purpose all the way to the end. You might be struggling this morning with assurance. You might be struggling with assurance of being right with God through Jesus Christ. Let me say this, if you're trusting in Christ then you're a recipient of the redemptive love of God that can never, ever be broken. 
He will never let you go. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. That which Christ has accomplished on the cross can never, ever be undone. Now, what is it that Christ has accomplished on the cross? He's accomplished pardon for sin. Why was it that he was able to accomplish pardon for sin? Because he lived a holy, righteous, perfect, law-keeping life. You see, we have two basic problems. We have the fact that we've broken God's law, right? And we're guilty before God. And we've got the problem that God's wrath abides upon us as a result of that. And if you think that you can get right with God by keeping his law, then go ahead and try. You'll fail. Because the Bible is clear. There is no justification by keeping the law. The law cannot be kept by us because of our sin. See, well, what am I to do? Well, here's the good news. Jesus has kept the law on our behalf. When you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what are you reading? You're reading the account of Jesus in our stead, perfectly keeping the law that we have broken. That's his righteousness that God is going to regard as our righteousness when we trust in Jesus. And then you've got his death on the cross. And what does his death do? Well, the shedding of his blood brings about the remission of sin. It deals with our guilt. It deals with our corrupt nature. The reality is that we are guilty before God and we haven't kept his law, so we need a righteousness that's not our own. Christ provides that. We need a pardon. Christ provides that through his death on the cross. And how do we know that God is pleased with Jesus? He raised them from the dead. And as a result of his resurrection, we can be confident that by trusting in Jesus, we will receive his righteousness and we will receive the pardon that he has secured for us. Our whole salvation is bound up in Jesus. Our whole grounds of acceptance with God are in Christ, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his rising from the dead. So you might be sitting here this morning and you might be struggling with assurance. You wonder if I really can be sure that the Lord has saved me. If you're resting in Jesus, you can be confident that his righteousness is your righteousness. His atonement is for you. And God is pleased to receive you as his child on the basis of nothing that you have done and everything that he has done. This is the good news of the gospel. So it's not about how you feel. It's about what you believe. It's about what you believe. When I get up in the morning, I don't always feel too good. That's why when you read Spiritual Depression by Martin Lloyd-Jones, it's quite helpful. One of the chapters in there, I read it a number of years ago, and it was helpful. He said, you go to church on a Sunday night or on a Sunday evening, you come home, you're encouraged, your soul is full. You get up on a, a, a Monday morning, and it's all gone. And you wonder, am I even a Christian? Am I even saved? He says, what you have to do is put one foot on the ground. Remind yourself, it's all in Jesus. Put the other foot on the ground. It's all in Jesus. My acceptance with God, my forgiveness for sin, my peace with God has got nothing to do with what I do. It's got everything to do with what he has done. And then you rise up and you say, Lord, try and get my feelings to catch up with my faith. But it's your faith in Jesus is Jesus himself, who is the grounds of your justification, dear brother, dear sister. And you can be confident, if you're resting in Christ, 
You're a child of God. God has nothing against you because of Jesus. What a glorious gospel this is. What a message this is to take to the streets of Holland, to the colleges of Holland, to West Michigan. I can assure you, when I'm walking around in California on the streets of Sacramento, I'm glad that I'm able to say to someone, you can be right with God, not on the basis of anything you do, on the basis of everything he's done. Trust him. Trust him. And that brings us to consider then this fourth truth about God. We've seen that God exists. We've seen that that God loves. We've seen that God gives. He gives his son, Jesus Christ, for the salvation of, of, of sinners. And what do we then discover? God calls. God calls. Now, where do we see that in the text? Well, Jesus says, because... Uh, God has given his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, God has ordained that he will save sinners through the work of his son as it's proclaimed in the world by those who believe it. This is why the church is so important. This is why being a Christian, we need to understand this, right? I I mentioned this yesterday to a group I was speaking to in Grand Rapids. The church is the divinely ordained agency for making disciples in the world. And it's the only divinely ordained agency. It's not the government's job to make disciples. It's not the academic university's job to make disciples of Jesus. It's our job as the church. We are actually created by God through the gospel to then take that gospel to the nations that others would believe it and become disciples of Jesus. This is why we exist. It's the sole reason why we exist, to make disciples of the nations. This is why I tell people, we're having a bit of fun this morning after the Sunday school hour, I'm not leaving California. Why? Because I'm there to preach the gospel. Make disciples of Jesus. That's why I went there. That's why I'm there. I'll have to, God will have to make it very clear for me to leave. Why? It's a mission field. That's the point. It's a mission field. The largest state in the union. The population is probably bigger than we even know because of all the other stuff that goes on. But the reality is, what's the only hope? I can assure you it's not in the white building that's eight blocks behind my church building with a big dome on the top. Yeah, we've, the Capitol building is only eight blocks from our church. Gavin Newsom's office is only a few blocks from my church. I remind people, when I went there, Arnold Schwarzenegger's office was the, only a few blocks. He's gone. Jerry Brown's office was only a few blocks from my office. He's gone. I'm still there. Gavin Newsom, you'll be gone soon. I'm hoping it's not D.C., but who knows? But he'll be gone. And if God's pleased, I'll still be there preaching the gospel to Californians, to make disciples. Why? Because that's why the church exists. And brothers and sisters, if we lose sight of that, we lose sight of everything. If we lose sight of why we're here, then we're going to have real problems. When I went to California a number of years ago, the church was discouraged. The church was in a difficult place. The pastor had been excommunicated. It was a mess. And the Lord was pleased over a number of years, to bring us to a place of health whereby we realize, why are we here? Are we here to fly the 1689 Confession of Faith? Now, don't misunderstand me. I love my confession, right? Are we here to fly the flag of being reformed? 
Don't misunderstand me. I'm a staunch Reformed Calvinist. Okay, don't misunderstand anything I'm saying. But we're not there for those things. You know why we're there? The gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. To preach the gospel. To proclaim the gospel. To be a light in the midst of a dark city, in a dark state, that God's love would be seen through the proclamation of Christ, that God would call through the preaching of Christ's name to our city. And what would we find? That people would believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. Brothers and sisters, that's what we're about. I've been there almost 19 years now. And I've slowed down a little bit, I have to confess. I'm getting a little bit older. But I'm hoping to gear back up again soon after COVID. With all that we've had to walk through and all of that. Why? Because there are still many souls in the city who need the gospel. Many souls are lost. The gay library is two blocks behind our church building. Literally two blocks. If I could walk through walls, I could almost walk straight to the front door of the gay library. The lavender library. Yep, it's in California, you would expect that. But here's the reality. I know where the, the coffee shop is. I know where people hang out. And what's my goal? To take the gospel of Jesus Christ to these dear souls who are lost and perishing and to call them to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I realize that for our church, that's just going to give me a whole new set of problems. If God starts saving and we start living 1 Corinthians, such were some of you, that's going to give us a whole new set of problems. But hey, those are the kind of problems I want. Those are the kind of problems I'm looking for. Those are the kind of problems I'm actually trying to create by seeing sinners brought to the faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because I believe that this message of Jesus Christ and him crucified is the message that God has ordained to call sinners out of darkness into light. The challenge for us, brothers and sisters, is we've got to keep believing that no matter what's happening in the culture, no matter what's happening in the nation, no matter what's happening in the world, we've got to keep preaching that. That's why we need to be careful what we feed our minds with, what we spend our time watching, what we spend our time listening to. We start feeding our heads and are feeding our minds with all the worldly politicization of this country and we lose sight of the gospel, we will die. Spiritually die. Spiritually irrelevant. Set to the side. I don't want to be set to the side by the Lord. I want to be used by the Lord. I want to be used by the Lord in the proclamation of the gospel. I hear people say things like, call me California and China California. Okay, I don't really care. I'm preaching the gospel there. I'm preaching the gospel there. People are getting saved. The Lord's doing some things. Now, it's small. It's not the revival I'm praying for, but I'm praying for revival. And I'm praying for revival to come out of California to humble the rest of America, especially the Christian church. Because the reality is, people think, can anything good come out of California? There are many Christians in California who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. We're proclaiming Christ and we're saying to the rest of America and the church, have confidence in the gospel. It's about the gospel. You read the history of America. You read the Great Awakenings. What is it that started the Great Awakenings? I'll tell you what it was. It was Whitfield preaching the gospel. It was Edwards preaching the gospel. It's the gospel that God uses. It's through the gospel that God calls sinners to Christ. It's not through issues. 
political or social or otherwise. I'm not saying they don't matter. Please don't misread what I'm saying. But the priority, the number one priority for the church is the gospel. The number one need for Holland, Michigan, for Grand Rapids, Michigan, for Detroit, Michigan, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the number one need for America. It's the number one need for the world. And it's never changed since the first century. It's never changed. And so God calls. God calls through preaching the gospel. So think about this. You've got a neighbor at home in your street. You maybe know them. They cut the grass or they, they're out in their yard. Have you ever told them the gospel? Well, it'd be great if so-so got saved. Well, how are they going to get saved if they never hear the gospel? Well, they live in West Michigan. They must have heard the gospel. Well, is that true? Do you, do you really know that for a fact? Maybe that's true, but maybe it's not true. Maybe your neighbor's never actually heard a clear presentation of the gospel of Christ. Maybe you're the vehicle in a simple conversation over the garden fence. If you have garden fences here. Maybe a simple chat in the yard at the front of the, the house. You say to them, hey, have you ever, have you ever considered John 3.16? Five truths about God? See, I'm helping you this morning, right? I'm setting it up for you, right? You bring the gospel to them. And then you go into your house and you, you say, Lord, by the power of your spirit, bring John to believe in Jesus. And your neighbor gets saved. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be amazing? How many of us are in here this morning? If we all had one person this week that we resolve, we are going to share the gospel. See, we can't save anybody, but we can tell them about Jesus. That's our responsibility. That's what we're called to. Whether it's a workmate, whether it's someone we play golf with, whether it's a neighbor, whether it's one of our relatives, if you're at home with your kids, don't neglect the gospel. Teach them the gospel. Tell them about Jesus. Over and over and over again until God is pleased to make them new creations in his son. You see, I fear that we've maybe lost confidence in the gospel. We've got, this, we've got sidetracked into other things. The devil's a master at sidetracking the church away from the gospel. Or we still are gathering and we're still talking about the Lord, but we've lost sight of the gospel. And we're not bringing the gospel to our nation or to our neighborhood. Brothers and sisters, listen, God calls sinners to Christ, but he doesn't do it unless the gospel is being explained to sinners. That's what Paul says in Romans 10. How shall they know? How shall they hear without a preacher? You might be that preacher. You might be the voice that God uses to tell someone about Jesus that they might be saved. And who knows, they might even come to church with you and be baptized and added to the church. Who knows what God might do? Brothers and sisters, we've got to have confidence in the gospel. We've got to believe the gospel. This is the God who calls. And the last point is this, because he is also the God who saves. He's the God who saves. Notice what Jesus says. That whosoever believes in him, and then it comes to the hard part of the gospel message, isn't it? Should not perish. That means should not go to hell. Right? We'll talk about that in a minute. But have everlasting life. Have you ever asked yourself whatever happened to the doctrine of hell? Have you ever asked that? You should ask yourself that question. Because it's an important question. 
I think part of the reason why perhaps some of us are not as keen to share the gospel with people is for two reasons. Either we don't really believe in hell, which is actually a really terrible indictment on us, or we're fearful about mentioning the hard doctrine of hell. And I think probably that's the second issue is the main issue, right? I'm not saying to you tomorrow morning, go into your office and say, hey folks, I heard a Scottish preacher yesterday and he said to us, we've got to start this day off by thinking about hell. That would not be a good idea, right? That would not be wise. And I'm not advocating that. But here's the point. Do I believe when I'm walking around the streets of Sacramento or when you're at work in Grand Rapids or in Holland here or whatever, do you believe that there are only two kinds of people walking around? People going to heaven and people going to hell. One of my great heroes of the Scottish church is Robert Murray McShane, as you might expect, right? And his memoirs, if you haven't read them, get them and read them, you'll be greatly blessed. He died at 29. He went off to the Middle East on a, on a, on a gospel mission, and God sent revival to his church when he was away. And that, that's a good way to humble the pastor, right? Send revival to the church when the pastor goes away. It's good for a pastor to have that experience because you then realize you're not as important as you thought you were, right? The reality is that his friend, Andrew Bonner, they were both at university together in Edinburgh. McShane dies at 29. Bonner lives till he's 88. And Andrew Bonner in his diary, who he put together McShane's stuff, Andrew Bonner in his diary records how he would lie in his bed on a Saturday night and he would hear below the window of his bedroom in Edinburgh, he was a Presbyterian pastor, he would hear the trudging of the people below his window coming home from a late night of drinking or a late night of partying and he would think to himself, it is the trudging of the heart, the, the, the feet of men heading for destruction. Apart from Christ, if sinners are not saved, they're going to perish. And that doesn't mean annihilation. It means eternal punishment in the place of everlasting wrath. And brothers and sisters, that's a hard doctrine. That's a difficult doctrine. That's a, a, a doctrine that is difficult to bring up in a conversation. I'm sure some of you have been in the place where someone have said, well, if you're saying this, do you mean that if that's the case, I'm going to, and you swallow hard, and you feel your hands get a little bit sweaty, and you realize, yes, that is exactly what the Bible teaches, that outside of Christ, you will face everlasting punishment in hell. But here's the point, brothers and sisters. Is it possible that our lack of believing that or our fear of saying that has actually muted our voices in actually speaking of Christ? What if we truly embraced afresh? What is at stake here in the gospel? Because what is at stake in the gospel is everlasting life or everlasting death. What is at stake here is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. And we've only got maybe 80, 90 years here to sort it out with God. And if we're going to have a measure of urgency, if we're going to have a measure of sobriety, if we're going to have a measure of care for our neighbor, 
we've got to be prepared to say to them, look, what you're being saved from in the gospel is God himself. Do you understand that? What does God save us from in Jesus? He saves us from God. God in his wrath, punishing us forever for our rebellion and our sin against him. You see, sin is cosmic treason against our creator. It's not a small thing. I know in our world, in our generation, and certainly in California, where they're letting criminals out for all manner of uh, ridiculous short periods of time, that the whole concept of justice and everything is in chaos in our nation. But perhaps part of the problem is the church has lost its voice in declaring who God is, what sin is, what Jesus does, and what the consequences are of rejecting this. Brothers and sisters, we need courage. I know that. I'm a coward. By nature, I am a coward. I I have situations arise, maybe with the Sacramento Republic soccer team, and I have this big yellow streak just starts to creep up my back just at the moment when I need to actually say something that is important. I battle with it. I battle with cowardice. I battle with fear. I would much rather sit at home and read a book right? Or watch a soccer game. But listen, God saves sinners, and he does it by the gospel. He does it through his son, and we have got to believe this. We have got to realize what is at stake here, where our neighbors are going when they die, where our workmates are going when they die. What happens when you die? It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. My dear brothers and sisters, we need to recapture this. We need to grasp this. We need to understand this. You can't make sense of the cross and Jesus bearing the wrath of God upon his own body on the tree. You can't make sense of that without a doctrine of eternal punishment. It makes no sense that the Son of God would suffer the wrath of God to save us from the wrath of God if there's no such thing as the wrath of God that we're heading for if we don't believe in the Son of God. And so we have to realize this. We have to be aware of this. That what is at stake is the salvation of never dying souls. And we need to recapture our urgency in this day. I was pleased to hear our brother pray for our president and pray for our politicians. We pray regularly for Gavin Newsom. He's the same age as me, by the way. He's taller and handsomer, but he's not as smart. But the reality is, I'd love to get a cup of coffee with the guy. I'd love to sit down with him, and I'd love to talk to him about Christ. I've heard recently that his wife has started to go to a church in Sacramento. It's not a great church. It's not the most clear church. But what does it indicate? They're looking for hope. They're looking for something more than what they're seeing, right? My prayer is that somehow someone in our city will cross paths with that woman and tell her the true gospel, that she might believe in Christ. And who knows? Maybe Gavin will yet get converted to Jesus, that he might be saved from wrath. Do you love your neighbor enough to tell them that? Do you love your neighbor enough to want it? Do you love your enemies enough? I know that Gavin is putting up stuff in our our, our Senate right now that it's terrible. It's terrible stuff. But the gospel is my confidence, the power of the gospel to reach that man. If God could save me, He can save Gavin through the gospel because God saves 
And so, my brothers and sisters, when you go to your work tomorrow, when you are out in the street of, in, in your little area where you live, or you're shopping or whatever, and the opportunity arises to tell someone the gospel, turn them to John 3, 16. Say, well, can I just tell you five things about God from this passage? First of all, God exists. Very important. And I want you to understand that God loves. And that love that God loves with, it's a giving love. God gives. And who has he given? His son. Why has he given him? To save us from God. And he calls. He calls you through me to believe in Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, listen, God is calling you through me, preaching his word to you to believe in his son that you might be saved from his judgment. And if you will trust in Jesus, you'll have your sins forgiven. You'll have peace with God. You'll have everlasting life. You can go armed tomorrow to work knowing this, that the message of the gospel that you're carrying with you is the message that God, Paul says is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes it. And you can go in with confidence knowing you can't save anybody, but you can sure tell them how they can be saved by telling them about Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, let us have confidence in the gospel. Let us believe the gospel. Let us proclaim the gospel. And let us be amazed to see what the power of the gospel might do through our lives as we live to the praise of the gospel that reveals to us the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we know that we live in dark days. We know that we live in days that are often discouraging for us. But we also would want to confess that at times we are discouraged because we take our eyes off the Lord Jesus and we take our eyes off the truth as it is in Jesus, and we have lost confidence perhaps even in the power of Christ in the gospel. So I would pray for your dear saints here today that you would rekindle in their hearts, you would encourage in their hearts confidence in their God, confidence in the gospel, confidence in its power to save sinners because it has saved us, and that you would enable them to bear, bear witness and testimony to the gospel, to this community, to this region, for the glory of your name. Father, we know that we need you to move in our land. We know that our land is in deep, deep trouble. We know that there is great darkness in the land, but we bless you that your people are here and that we still have your word and that your gospel is still true and that you are pleased to bless your gospel when it is proclaimed. And so to this end, Lord, we would pray that whether it's in California, whether it's in Michigan, whether it's in any of the other states, you would begin to move by your Spirit in ways that you have in the past to turn again our hearts to the Lord. Have mercy upon us, Lord, we pray. In judgment, remember mercy. And may it be, Lord, that we, your people, would rediscover the power of the gospel in our own hearts so that we might then live according to it in our lives, that others might taste and see that the Lord is good, because Jesus Christ has lived and died and risen from the dead, ascended to glory, reigning and ruling, and coming again at the end of the age. For we ask it in his name. Amen.